joy to be here this morning with you. You remember what happened last week? You're like, what happened last week? We had baby dedication last week, right? Not baby baptism. That's at the church down the road. We do baby dedication here. But when those babies came in, you have to admit, they, little babies are cute. Everybody knows that. And I know that there were parents and grandparents here. And when those little babies were up front, you can hear the oohs and the ahs. Do you remember that? I, I, I think I physically heard it. Oh, everybody loves babies. And you don't expect a lot of babies, do you? I mean, they sleep. That's, all, that's about all they do. 20 to 22 hours a day, an infant sleeps. I got that number off the top of my head, by the way. I don't know if it's accurate. <laughs> but as they get older, they mature. And they grow. And they develop. And I'll be honest with you, when I was thinking about how a child develops... It has been a while since I've had a small child. As a matter of fact, my youngest son, Cameron, is turning 14 tomorrow. That's just amazing. It really is. So I've forgotten the rate at which a child is expected to grow. I had to look it up. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Here's what I found out. You mothers, you, you, you know this. So, so, you know, dads or those of you who aren't married, let me uh, educate you a little bit. By one month, a baby can begin to lift her head. Did you know this, that at birth, babies have no kneecaps? I just thought that was fascinating. They, grow, they develop later. By three months, a baby can babble and mimic sounds, do these uh, mini push-ups. The first social smile appears between four to six weeks after a baby's birth. Did you know that Newborns see best at only 8 to 14 inches away. And until they're three months old, they see best in their peripheral view. By six months, a baby is ready to start solid food. I found this. It's a little bit troubling. Did you know that newborns urinate about every 20 minutes? <laughs> it's no wonder you go through about a dozen diapers a day. When they're about six months old, they, they urinate about every hour, so they slow down a bit. By seven months, a baby can roll to her tummy and back over. By eight to 12 months, a baby can crawl and stand. By a year, they start to walk. They can typically understand about 70 words, though they, they can only speak a handful of them. By 18 months, they start speaking new words at an astonishing rate. Listen to this, about one new word every two waking hours. By age two, they begin to run, they can kick a ball, climb on a sofa, go up and down stairs, fall down stairs, begin to speak short phrases and sentences. And by age three, they can speak hundreds of words, jump, pedal a tricycle, draw a circle, even complete a simple puzzle. Growth, development. But what happens when a baby or an infant doesn't progress, doesn't mature at the expected rate? You start to worry. You start to panic. You say, well, what's, what's wrong? What can be done? We need to remedy this problem. So we go to the doctor, 
And then maybe there's a therapy that's prescribed to get the child to where they need to be. But what happens when a Christian is immature? Oftentimes, nothing is done. It might even be accepted. So I ask you this morning, what's the rate, what rate does a child of God grow? You know, where should somebody be at one month as a Christian? Three months, six months, a year, three years, five years, 20 years. Well, frankly, it's just not that easy, is it? We're not talking about physical development. We're talking about spiritual development. And there's too many things that are complicated and involved with that. It's not just a formula you can spit in and figure out where somebody should be. And yet, the Bible does expect us to grow in our faith. You see, God expects us to mature in our our understanding of his word and in our walk with him. And so in our passage this morning, we're looking at the end of chapter 5 of Hebrews and the beginning of chapter 6. In this passage, the author of Hebrews rebukes the readers at least some of them, for not being as mature as they ought to have been. And so he writes in Hebrews 5.12, he says, For by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. You see, the Bible often warns against spiritual immaturity, comparing the immature to infants or babies. Paul does this in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 3, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready. At the end of that book, in chapter 14, he says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, but in your thinking, be mature. And then again in our passage, in in chapter 5 of Hebrews, in verse 14, he says, Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so this is the the text that we'll be looking at this morning. But how do we get here? What's the theme of the book of Hebrews? I hope by now you you know the major theme where we're going, what what the author is trying to convey to his readers, that Jesus is greater. And he mentions at least five things that Jesus is greater than. He's greater than the the prophets in the Old Testament. God spoke in various times and various ways in the Old Testament, but through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. He's greater than the angels. The angels are ministering spirits, but Jesus, the son, is the eternal God. He's greater than Moses, who was uh, used by God greatly, but he was a servant in God's house. Jesus is the son. He's greater than Joshua. What did Joshua do? He gave the people rest in the land, but it wasn't the complete rest. Jesus provides eternal rest. And in the section we're in, Jesus is the great high priest. He's greater than Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood. He is the great 
high priest. And within this book, there are five warning passages interspersed throughout. Uh, And here today we come to the third warning. The first warning, I don't know if you remember it. I hope you do. Back in chapter 2 was this, don't drift. And so the author writes, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift. The second warning in chapter 3 was this, do not harden your hearts. He says, goes on to say, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't drift, don't harden your hearts. This week, today, this morning, we will consider the third warning. It's this, that immaturity can easily lead to apostasy. And so the main idea is this, we must strive against immaturity because that puts us dangerously close to the peril of apostasy. And so there's really three different, three different movements in this text. First, you have a rebuke, followed by a challenge, and then finally a warning. Rebuke, challenge, and warning. So let's pray together. Father, nobody, nobody likes to be rebuked. We often don't like to be challenged. And so, Lord, through your spirit, would you awaken our hearts? Lord, that our hearts would not be hardened to you, but that we would hear your word, that it would be effective in us to good. We thank you, Lord, that you care enough for us to warn us to awaken us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would have your way with us this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, we have a rebuke. The rebuke is this. Don't be spiritually immature. Chapter 5 and verse 11. The author says, about this. And he says about this, he's talking about Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood. Which, yeah, that's say that ten times real fast. Um, but he left off at the end of uh, the, the previous passage, and he was talking about how Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he says, about this, we have much to say that it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. He says, by this time, <clears throat> you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You see, there is a biblical expectation that you will mature, that you will grow in your faith, that every believer will mature he says in verse 12, for by, for, for by this time you ought to be teachers. See, You see, a certain amount of time had passed. I don't know how long it is. doesn't say. But there was an expectation after this amount of time that they would have matured. And they didn't. That they would have known the basics of the faith and have grown on that. But they need to, again, be reminded of the basics. 
He says, you ought to be teachers. You might say, well, wait, wait a minute. And I thought James chapter 3, verse 1 says, not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, because you who teach will be judged with stricter greatness. Uh, um, a greater strictness, sorry. I didn't get that right. Not many of you should become teachers. And yet here he says, you ought to be teachers. Well, I think here he's not, he's not using teacher in the technical sense. He's not saying everyone must be a teacher, but that you should know the basics enough to be able to communicate that to someone else. You should be able to teach the basics. But they weren't able to. They should have known the fundamentals of the faith. They should know the, as he, said, he calls them, the basic principles of the oracles of God, which are highlighted down in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He explains what some of those are. They weren't maturing. They weren't growing. Notice how he describes them. They were, in verse 11, they were dull of hearing. Some translations say lazy of hearing. They're sluggish, lethargic. Earlier he said, pay more careful attention to what you have heard. And now he says, yes, you, you are dull of hearing. In verse 12, he says, they need milk, not solid food. Milk would be the basic teachings. Solid food would be, the meat would be the more advanced understanding, like Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood. But they weren't ready for that. They need to be taught the basics again. He says that they are children. Literally, the word there is infants. You are infantile. You are unskilled in the word of righteousness. He says in verse 14 that they are immature. They lack discernment. You see, if we are not careful, we can become complacent and not grow in our faith. That happened to the readers here. You see, if, if you don't exercise and you don't work out, don't be surprised if you don't get stronger. You don't you wake up one day and like, man, I'm, it's still me, I'm the same me. Well, yeah, you haven't done anything. Of course it's still you. Matter of fact, you might be atrophying, right? If you're not progressing, usually you're drifting. The same is true spiritually. If we, don't, if we do nothing to challenge, to push, to stretch ourselves, we are unlikely to grow. Well, what are signs of spiritual immaturity? And by the way, this is a spiritual immaturity. It's not just intellectual uh, this, is, this is primarily a moral, a spiritual immaturity. What are the characteristics of spiritual infants? Let me just throw out a few uh, that, I, that I thought of and um, that I think we all fall into at times. But just to evaluate ourselves, spiritual infants tend to be self-centered. You know, they approach, for example, they approach Sunday morning with the idea, what can I get out of it instead of coming to worship the living God. They don't think about serving others. They think about how can I be served. Spiritual infants, like regular infants, uh, are noisy. They complain a lot. Particularly when they, think, they don't think their needs are being met. Spiritual infants are impatient. They, they don't understand why things don't change in accordance with their desires. They are easily offended. It doesn't take much to upset them. 
You know, if, if you've done something to annoy them, they're going to take their ball and go home. They're very good at holding grudges. And spiritual infants are not responsible. They're good at expecting a lot from others, but they're not good at expecting a lot from themselves. But they are good at blaming others for their problems. And so, because they were not maturing, the author, author strongly rebukes his readers. Would the author of Hebrews say the same thing about us? Would we escape this rebuke or would it land close to home? Now, let me say this, however. The, the very purpose of this rebuke was not to shame his readers. Not trying to shame them or embarrass them. Instead, he's trying to wake them up. They were sluggish. They need to hear the truth so that they wake up because they are in danger. And so it's a wake-up call. So first thing we have is a rebuke. Don't be spiritually immature. The second thing is a challenge. Verses 1 to 3, he says, go on to maturity. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Are you maturing in your faith? In verse 1, he clearly says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. There's a command in the Bible. We are commanded to go on to maturity. You know, earlier in chapter 4 and verse 14, the author encouraged us to hold fast our confession. Remember that? Hold fast our confession. What does that mean? How do you hold fast your confession? I think this text helps answer that question. We grow in our maturity, in our knowledge and love of Jesus. We hold fast by progressing in maturity. Now, I don't think it means that we leave behind the basics. He says, notice he says in verse 1, let us leave the elementary doctrine. He's not saying leave it behind, forget about that and move on to something else. We never leave the elementary basics of Christ in the sense of leaving them behind. You never mature beyond the gospel, the basics of the faith. These are not dispensable. You know, a child, you don't leave behind the alphabet once you learn that. Everything is built on that. I saw a quote from Greg Glassman, who is the founder of CrossFit, if you don't know what CrossFit is, let me give you a definition. I'm not, I'm not even sure what the definition means, but here it is. It's a uh, high-intensity exercise that involves constantly varied functional movements. I'm not sure what that means. Um, but it's a this, this type of exercise, right? And so here's what he says. Stick to the basics, and when you feel you've mastered them, it's time to start all over again. Beginning anew, again with the basics, this time paying closer attention. That's exactly it. 
You know, he calls these, the author calls these elementary doctrines the foundation. You know, you don't build a building, you don't start with the foundation over here, then build the rest of the building over here. That would make no sense at all. Everything is built on the foundation. The strength of the, the building comes from the foundation. It's all tied into the foundation. He says, let us, move, let us progress. Now, you should know the foundation. You don't. He says, let's move on. We need to mature. But we don't leave the foundation behind. And he mentioned six different things related to this foundational teachings. I, I won't go into any detail here, but it seems to be that there are three sets of two, three couplets. He mentions repentance from dead works, faith towards God. Those seem to be, refer to the beginning of the Christian life. Repentance and faith. You know, repent and believe. And then he mentions washings. Uh, this could be ceremonial washings related to Judaism or how, maybe how they relate to Christian baptism. He talks about the laying on of hands which is often symbolic of blessing or the Holy Spirit. And then the, the last couplet you see there is the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, which refer to the end, the resurrection of the body and the eternal judgment. So he seems that these are some of the basics that, that they have ought to have known, but they didn't. Well, what does it mean for us to be mature? Let me mention a couple things. I think it means growth in doctrine. Growth and doctrine. Not only should we know the basic principles, the milk, but we should know the more advanced teachings of Scripture as well. The solid food, the meat. That we should be skilled in the word of righteousness. Now, perhaps you're of the opinion that, you know, doctrine's not that important. I would say, whoa, 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 be very careful. The whole book of Hebrews is based on the idea that doctrine is important. That's the whole point of Hebrews. Jesus is superior. Let me teach you about Jesus. So doctrine is important. I, I, I hope that we don't use that as an excuse. Oh, doctrine's not important. To, to not study the Bible in detail, not study, to dig into Scripture. I mean, think about the very reason this warning is given is because they, didn't, they couldn't grasp the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ. And so there's an excursus, a warning, a rebuke. Doctrine is important. Our faith is built on truth. Which is why I think it's important that every member be involved in a life change class. And wouldn't you know that today is the time that we, we, we dismiss a little bit early. Lord willing. Um, and you can go look and, and you can sign up for life change class. I mean, maybe now's the time for us to, to press on to maturity. Maybe we thought, ah, you know, I'm kind of busy. It's always difficult. Let's take that step of faith and let's commit to life change class. When's the last time that you studied the Bible in detail? When was the last time that you read a book about the Bible? To help you to get deeper in the things of God. Or maybe, maybe it could challenge you this way. Have you thought about becoming a small group leader? I know many of you have and you've been encouraged to do that. And you just haven't. There's always something. Isn't there always something? It's difficult to commit. And then, and then I have to be there every week. You know, It might be at my home. 
it, it's difficult. It's, it, it feels like you're never quite ready. There's always something. Now, I remember when, I, when our children were, were smaller. You know, the smaller they are, the more naps children take, right? And there comes the time when they're down to one afternoon nap. You know what I'm talking about? That one glorious afternoon nap that you're thankful for, that still exists for your child, that you can rest while they're napping. And the time comes when, when you, it's probably right and you're not sure the child's ready, you're definitely probably not ready, but you have to pull that nap. And when you do, you realize, hey, you know what? I'm surviving. The child is surviving without the nap. I think it's time for some of us to stop napping spiritually and wake up and press on to maturity. You see, we should be growing in our knowledge of God and his word, especially as it relates to Jesus, how he is the fulfillment of of God's promises in the Bible. So growth in doctrine. But I would also say growth in practice. You know, as the author says, we need to be able to discern or distinguish good from evil. We need to be able to make the right choices. You see, maturity is never merely about affirming certain doctrines and then moving on. No, those truths of Scripture are to lead us to fellowship with God, to intimacy with Him, to conform us to the image of Christ. We need to be growing in our love of Him, of of the church, of love for our neighbors. Are you progressing in your Christian faith in that way? Are you growing Think about, are you growing in joy, in peace, in kindness, in patience, in goodness, in faithfulness, in gentleness, in self-control? There's there's really no standing still. If we're not growing, we're probably drifting. And so the author instructs the readers to move on to maturity. And then finally... The last thing he gives is a warning. And the warning is this. If you are spiritually immature, you are in a dangerous place. Verse 4 of chapter 6. He says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, And then have fallen away. He says it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the son of God. To their own harm. And holding him up to contempt. What the author is saying is this. There's a connection between chapter 5 and chapter 6. And that is if you are not maturing. You are in danger of forsaking the faith. One commentator, Tom Schreiner, said this. The readers, because of their infancy, are slipping towards apostasy. Those who are spiritual infants can't remain where they are. They will either go forward or they will fall away and be destroyed forever. Hence, the warning that follows is urgent since death and life are at stake. You see, what he's saying is this. If our our hearts become hard... If our ears become dull, 
and we begin to drift, we are in a dangerous position. Have you ever seen somebody who was a committed Christian, as far as you could tell, but then over time they drifted and they drifted and now they've rejected Christ? If you've, if you've been around for a while, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've, you've seen that happen. It's tragic, but it happens. How does it happen is the question. Well, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like you wake up one day, you know what, I want to reject Christ. That is not how it happens. It happens slowly. Some of you may be familiar with the song by Casting Crowns, right? The slow fade. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. Well, what happens? Well, oftentimes, the first thing that happens is they pull away from individuals. After a while, there's no one to encourage them, no one to counsel them, no one to warn them, no personal accountability. You know, the author of Hebrews says in in chapter 3, exhort one another every day. There's no one to exhort them every day. You know, if you were to wander from the faith, pull away, is there someone in your life who would notice, who would come after you? If not, you could be in a very dangerous place. So first is, oftentimes what happens is people pull away from individuals. Then they, they pull away from corporate meetings. That's why the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, let us consider how to stir up one another toward love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, first they pull back from small group. Then it's, then it's Sunday morning. And then pretty soon, no one has seen them for months. You wonder, where is this person? And in the midst of that, they get deceived by sin. Again, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 talks about Moses and how he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. See, the Bible says that sin is pleasure, has pleasure, but it's fleeting. And Moses chose the right direction. But sometimes we get deceived. Sin lures us away from the love of God. And then ultimately, they lose their first love. You know, Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That's why the book of Hebrews is so important. We need to be reminded again and again of the supremacy of Jesus so that we do not drift and lose our first love. It's only when we see Jesus for who he truly is that we won't embrace sin. We have to have a greater passion. Now, let me just briefly address a couple questions that sometimes comes up with this text in in Hebrews chapter 6. Because there are oftentimes theological questions that people ask. For example, were these people who who rejected Christ, were they believers? Did they lose their salvation? You ever wondered that? is, Is he describing people who are Christians or almost Christians? Were these people... Genuine believers, or they, were they imposters? And my response to that is, that's the wrong question. 
Do you think the people who read this letter were wondering, hey, were the, no, they, they, they weren't asking that question. You know what they were asking? Wow, you know, this, this warning is for me. This rebuke is for me. I need to hear the word of God. And so some, we have to be careful not to impose our questions on the text, but let the text speak to us. And, you know, what was happening in, this, in the context? The readers were in danger of forsaking Christ and the church and going back to Judaism because of suffering and persecution. Things were getting difficult, and so they were thinking about going back to Judaism. But in going back to Judaism, their statement, their declaration was, Jesus isn't the Messiah. Jesus isn't greater. And they forsake Christ, and they go back. And the author, when he uses these words, he's just describing people that were part of the covenant community. Well, we don't know whether that person was actually saved or not, and that's really not the, the main issue. He says, those who once been enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. He's simply describing people who, were, who repented, who believed in Christ, and who were baptized. But here's what we do know. If someone rejects Christ, there, there is no salvation outside of Christ. Whoever rejects Christ is not saved. That we know. And that's what the author is trying to communicate. Apart from Christ, there is no salvation. There's another question that sometimes comes up, and that's this. Can people who reject Christ, they apostatize, they leave the faith, can they come back? Because it seems to say that they can't, right? It says, for it is impossible, and then you got this description of who they are, right? These, these, they, they made a credible profession of faith. They were part of the covenant community. It's impossible, if they've fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. It's impossible to restore them to repentance. Does that mean once you reject Christ, you can never come back? And I, my answer is I don't think that's what the text is saying. What I think he's saying is this. It's impossible for them to receive repentance if they are rejecting Christ. As long as you are rejecting Christ, there is no repentance available. It's those, for those who persist in that. He's describing the sin of apostasy. And I think this is the same thing that is happening in chapter 10 and verse 26. The author writes, If we go on sinning deliberately. See, go on sinning deliberately. He's talking about rejecting Christ. If we go on rejecting Christ... After receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. He's saying this, apart from Christ, there is no sacrifice for sins. There is no forgiveness. There is no means of repentance and thus no restoration possible. George Guthrie put it this way in his commentary. He says, repentance in in chapter 6 is impossible Because there is nowhere else to go for repentance once one has rejected Christ. The apostate, in effect, has turned his or her back on the only means available for forgiveness before God. Repentance has been and is ruled out because the fallen ones are rejecting Christ. But this interpretation leaves open the possibility that a turning back to Christ would affect repentance. 
It may be difficult once somebody knows the truth and rejects Christ, but it's not impossible. What he says is impossible for those who are rejecting Christ. There is no repentance outside of Christ. And then we have a, an illustration here in verses 7 and 8 that our fruits, really, our fruits reveal who we really are. You know, Jesus says, by, your, by their fruit you will know them, you will recognize them. And what, he's, what the author is saying here in verses 7 and 8 is that those who affirm the supremacy of Christ will bear fruit, but those who reject Christ will not. And so, verse 7, he says, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to, for those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And so what he's saying is this. If someone has received the privileges, the blessings of God, which he calls rain here, if someone knows the truth about Jesus, was part of the covenant community, and received those blessings, and the response is thorns and thistles, they reject Christ, the result God's judgment, cursed and burned. In other words, there is no repentance. If we receive the blessings from God and do not bear fruit, he says, we will be judged. So let me conclude by saying this, by asking you this question. Do you consider yourself spiritually mature? Don't, don't, don't raise your hand, please. This, this, is not, this is not the time for that. But do you consider yourself spiritually mature for, for the time that you've been in the faith? It's different for everybody. Or maybe a better question is, would others consider you spiritually mature? Does your lifestyle, your attitude reflect somebody who is mature? Are you growing in your knowledge and love of Christ? Do you desire him more than the pleasures of this world you see what the author of Hebrews is saying is if not then you are in a dangerous place and so we need to pray that God will awaken our hearts and retune our ears so that we will hear his voice and follow him if you have wandered from the from the truth if you have begun to wander my plea to you this morning is do not stay there. You see, the good news of the gospel is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our God is a consuming fire who will destroy those who oppose him. But he is also a gracious, loving, heavenly father who will never cast out those who come to him humbly. Let's pray together. Father, we know that those of us who are parents, that it is grace to our children when we correct them. It demonstrates our love for them, our concern for them. Lord, in this, this passage is a testimony of your love for us, that you love us, that you inspired this author to communicate these truths to 
his original audience so that they would wake up, that they would press on to maturity. And, oh, Lord, I pray that you would do the same for us. Lord, that we would hear your voice, that we would not be drawn away by the voice and the, the call of this world, but that we would see and Savior Christ, that we would understand the great salvation that we would have and that we would not neglect it, but that we would revel in it and it would cause us to humble ourselves before you, to seek you above all else, and to commit everything we are and everything we have to your glory. Lord, forgive us for being drawn aside and drawn away, for being stagnant, for drifting. Lord, we love you and we pray that you would be gracious to us. And through this word, Lord, that we would once again